Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and welcome to a special edition of Inside Economics. Uh, we have a guest, uh, Sharon Parrott. Sharon's the president of the Center for Budget uh, Policy and Priorities. Sharon, welcome. Welcome. How are you? Uh, Thank you. Uh, well, you know, it's been a tough week, Sharon, right? I mean, Russia invading Ukraine, that's, uh, you know, pretty difficult to watch. Uh, and, uh, but you know, it is Friday afternoon. So I guess that takes some of the sting out, but, uh, but it's, it's good to have you and, and, and welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Let's, uh, I'm very curious, Sharon, about your personal history. How, um, how did you become president of CBPP? Well, I've been president for a little more than a year. Um, so I started in January of 2021. Um, just a few days into my tenure was the violent insurrection on the Capitol. Uh, so it was sort of a little trial by fire from a, from a leadership perspective, actually. Um, but I am no stranger to the center. So I actually am someone who has been at the center and then away from the center and back to the center a number of times. So I actually first came to the center in 1993. I like to tell people, you know, that I was a teenager because otherwise how could I possibly, but, but I wasn't. <laughs> um, so I came right out of grad school. Oh. And I spent time at the center. I spent time, I left for a couple of years to work at the DC Human Services Agency to be able to sort of see how programs work on the ground and had a fantastic experience there. Came back to the center and then spent much, though not all, of the Obama administration actually inside the administration. So I was at HHS, I was at OMB, and I came back to the center um, after a uh, three-week vacation, after the end of the Obama administration, I turned off the lights, uh, took a few weeks off to catch my breath, and then came back to the center uh, in February 2017. So that is a thumbnail sketch. Oh, so you've been with the center pretty much most of your career, more or less, with a few breaks here and there. Yeah. So basically, I've been at the center or in government service uh, very, very cool. for my career. Yeah. And uh, the center was uh, founded by Bob Green. Greenstein, right? Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yeah. And so you must, you and he must go way back then, you know? Yeah. So I'm only the second head of the organization. Uh, Bob founded the organization uh, a little more than 40 years ago, about 40 years ago. Okay. Um, so that's a long time. Uh, I kept being told, oh, you have such big shoes to fill and finally said, yes, but now they're heels. Um, and try to lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, but he was a tremendous leader. He built an, just a tremendous organization um, it, with a lot of growth. We've, we've really expanded what we do as compared to when the organization started. Um, and even as compared to when I first came in, uh, in, in uh, 1993. So, so do you, if I say you're a think tank, is that, is that a, do you view that as a positive way to characterize your institution or, or, or not? Is that okay? You're okay? Yeah. With yeah. That? So I think yeah, think okay. tank is a, is a pretty good description. I think the okay. thing that's hard is that um, think tanks, people often have this image of people doing more academic, like kind of academic work. And then it's sort of, it sits on the shelf or people use it or they don't use it as, as what the center tries to do is combine sort of um, rigorous research and analysis with, communications and strategic work to try to advance a policy agenda. And so that is, I think, part of what makes it hard to describe, but we often get described as think tank, and that is better than, I think, some things, other things that we're sometimes doing. <laughs> well, okay, that's an interesting point. So like you take a Brookings, which is a, let's say another think tank, mm -hmm. they don't actually 
work to per, pursue a specific policy agenda that that's you right. do. So you'll that's pick right. up the mantle, the baton for some like child tax credit or whatever it may be and say, hey, SNAP or whatever program you think is important and say, hey, we need to do this. Right. So we are basing our policy views on evidence and research on a set of values, but we are working to actually try to advance them in a strategic way, not just not just through putting out research analysis, though we do a lot of that. Um, so that's right. That um, Sometimes I, I tell people, you know, there's sort of a continuum of advocacy and academic research, and you can think about different organizations following different different part, ways along that continuum. Yeah, right. Um, in uh I was going to ask something else about, oh, uh, it, when you, when people think about the, the uh, think tanks in Washington, you know, I, I mentioned Brookings and I kind of think of Brookings as in the political kind of spectrum as being kind of center, maybe a little more progressive, left of center, as you might say, in like AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, kind of a little bit right of center. And then I think of the CBP as a little bit more, pro even more progressive than, than Brookings. Would that, would that be a fair characterization? Do you, do you think about it that way or is that unfair? Kind of, well, I, w uh, I won't speak to how Brookings and AEI want to be characterized, yeah, but okay. um, in terms of, of the center, um, I certainly don't shy away from the notion that we are a part of the progressive infrastructure, that we are promoting progressive policies. Um, again, based in evidence, research and values. Got it. Okay, very good. And you know, I kind of started this conversation a little oddly i didn't introduce anybody else and i didn't even tell anybody but what we're here talking to, to talk about we just, so it's a little weird uh but instead of starting this whole thing over again let me do that now i mean you know we uh at, here uh, at moody's have done a study of uh of the of, uh, global fiscal policy under the pandemic and we're going to talk a little bit about that but it, it dovetails very nicely with the work that you and your team at the center just completed where you also kind of did the same thing, looking at U.S. fiscal policy during the pandemic and said, hey, you know, uh, what worked, what, what didn't work quite as well? And overall, how, what do we think about this? And obviously you landed in a place where you think the policy steps were, were uh, pretty well done and, you know, helped the economy and helped uh, lower income households. And we here at Moody's kind of landed in the same place. So we thought this would be a, a good place to have a conversation around that. Um, so just, yeah, I probably should have started that way but uh just just for the listener that's that's where we're headed here uh is that a sharon do you think that's a pretty good way to characterize the the conversation you're you're okay with that as a direction for the conversation yeah absolutely okay okay very good and uh to that end um i do want to introduce uh, uh the co-authors on this paper i just mentioned that moody's uh, completed we've got uh, bernard bernard yaros uh, listeners know bernard bernard is um he kind of directs all of our federal fiscal policy efforts. And uh, good to see you, Bernard. Nice to see you, Mark. Glad to be yeah. back on. I think he has new glasses, guys. I don't know. I, I've never seen mm -hmm. new glasses. <laughs> yeah. Do I have that right, Bernard? Yeah, you did. Bernard, yeah, you do. I just got them. Yeah. See how, yeah. I'll see how I, you know, I'm very perceptive, Bernard. I, I, I see <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we've got uh, Jesse. Jesse Rogers has also been on the podcast before. Jesse is all things emerging markets with a LATM twist, but you know we he's done a lot of work with the global model and the work we did in the study. Jesse, good to see you. Good to see you, Mark. Good to be with yeah. everybody. Good. And uh, Ross, Ross uh, Coffee, uh, he's off in uh, Prague uh, and helped out a lot in trying to understand the policies that uh, the Europeans put in place. Ross, good to see you. Yeah, it's nice to be talking with you guys tonight. 
and he says he has a New Jersey accent, but that doesn't that's that's New Jersey Czech or something. I don't know what that is. We got the, my two two co-hosts, uh, Chris Dorides and Ryan Sweet. Hi guys. Hey Mark. Yeah, we just had a podcast earlier today. So okay, let's dive into um, the Moody study uh, quickly. And uh, Bernard, can you give us a thumbnail description of you know what we did and uh, you know broadly broadly speaking, what the results were? Yeah, so we did a scenario in which uh, we took the baseline, our baseline forecast, um, which already has the macro impact of all of the stimulus measures that have been implemented uh, by, you know, by every, by every country. And we looked specifically at the 10 largest economies in the country, so th in, the, in the world. So these are obviously the U.S., China, uh, Japan, uh, Germany, France, Italy, Canada, Brazil, and India. And what we did is we went into using the Moody's Analytics global macro model. We uh, we took our baseline forecast and removed from it all sorts, all of the stimulus measures, the discretionary stimulus measures that these countries implemented since the start of the pandemic. So, for example, we removed all the the government support to households from personal income. We removed uh, all the support from the government to the private sector from from uh, business income and profits. Uh, and then we also removed, for example, public health spending from government expenditures. There were several other you know, adjustments that we made, but those were primarily the big ones that we did across all of our 10 uh, countries. So like that, we were able to simulate you know, an alternate universe in which these 10, uh, in, in which these 10, 10 large economies, which account for, you know, more than, a, you know, more than two thirds of the global economy did not step up at all to support households, businesses, and, and the public health response uh, during this period of time. And the results were quite severe. Say, uh, before you go can, on, sorry, Bernard, just, you, uh, uh, just to interrupt for a second, uh, two key other points. One is we did allow the so-called automatic stabilizers in mm -hmm. the governments uh, to, uh, to execute. So these are things that are built into the budget, spending tax side of the budget of these governments that, you know, would they kick in when the, the economy weakens and helps to stabilize, so-called stabilize the economy. We allowed those to uh, kick in. Uh, we didn't do anything with that, correct? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Th th those were allowed to act. As, yeah, uh, th those would have occurred no matter what. Um, and we also assumed that monetary policy would have occurred uh, um, independent of, you know, so monetary policy still would have risen uh, you know, monetary policymakers would have still risen to the occasion to offset, you know, the, a much weaker, uh, much weaker economic outcomes. Um, but that said, you know, uh, even prior, you know, prior to the the pandemic, you know, monetary policymakers had, especially in the U.S., had always been um, talking about how fiscal policy really needed to step up, and step up they did during this uh, during the pandemic, and that's really what our results uh, showed. Um, if we just look at the global economy, it would have uh, declined twice as fast in 2020, and the recovery would have been much slower in, in uh, uh, last year. And even though you, we would have started having a you know a self-sustaining uh, recovery um, you know by by this year, we would have never gone back to sort of the pre-pandemic uh, trajectory, which uh, we which were you know which we're, where we're at right now, and that would be due to a lot of long-term scarring that was ultimately prevented by fiscal po policymakers. 
Um, and we estimate that over the very long term, you know, the global economy, at least as measured by real GDP, would have been permanently reduced by about, you know, two and a half to three percent over the very long term, looking out uh, 10 years. And uh, the job market outcomes would have also been equally grim. Uh, in, at least in the U.S., we would have had double-digit unemployment all the way through uh, through the end of last year. Globally, we would have seen last year about 40 uh, 40 million more jobless workers, and, and that's you know uh, globally. Um, and it just it it just really would have been a lot more pain and suffering um, that was ultimately prevented by by fiscal policy. Okay, so just to summarize, so we have a model of the global economy. Uh, we we know uh, what fiscal policies have been put in place, and we see how the economy performed. And we then uh, simulated our model, taking out the discretionary emergency federal programs that different governments put in place to combat the pandemic, mm-hmm. simulated, assumed the Federal Reserve and other central banks would do what they typically do, uh, and that's modeled in the in the uh, the is in the model. Uh, assume the vaccines, the therapies, all that was what it was. Uh, and uh, you, if you do that, uh, based on the, the model simulations, you generate this alternative world, as you called it, the count, a counterfactual world. And you find mm-hmm. just you know, very clearly uh, the, the impact would have been devastating on the global economy, even if the Exactly. Yeah. Put everything it had at supporting the economy. Every ECB, BOE, BOJ didn't matter. We were we're going down the rabbit hole if we didn't have that fiscal support. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And because I mean, the main really, I, I mean, a lot of the the a lot of the support was really to households by supporting personal income. So when you reduce the transfer payments that went to households, you know, this is for the U.S. and elsewhere, that reduces obviously disposable personal income, which then weighs on consumer spending. Um, and then, you know, obviously less consumer spending feeds directly into less GDP, higher unemployment, less imports, less trade, and that just reverberates, you know, everywhere else. Yeah, got it. And was there anything in the results that you found very surprising, Bernard? I mean, anything that kind of said, hey, I, you know, I, I might have thought that, but this is really something that kind of stands out for me. I I didn't realize how many countries, so of our 10 countries, about four of them benefited even more from uh, outside stimulus than they did from their own, uh, you know, from their own domestic stimulus. So these were countries like China, Germany, Canada in particular, um, and as well as India. And I think, you know, there's a saying, you know, when the United, you know, when the U.S. uh, sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. And that was probably no truer in this um, uh, in this case, the U.S. really stepped up much. Uh, if you look at uh, fiscal support in the U.S. as a share of pre-pandemic GDP was 25 percent, which is much higher than you know any other of the countries that we looked at. Um, and that really, you know, that really supported um, a lot of uh, a lot of export-oriented economies throughout uh, throughout the world, and probably probably no more so than you know in our backyard and here in uh, North America. So Canada and Mexico really benefited tremendously, um, and uh, you know one of the you know one of the poster childs of sort of this supply-demand imbalance has been the vehicle you know has been the vehicle sector, and in our uh, in our results you know we find that about six million fewer vehicles would have been sold last year. 
this would have been not due to supply side constraints. It would have been entirely in the demand side. And that really would have walloped uh, economies, you know, like Canada and, uh, and Mexico, which would have declined as much, would have declined further by six to eight percent, um, you know, in our in this counterfactual scenario, just because of all the, the fewer vehicles and less goods. And even in Europe, I mean, they were also sensitive to the U.S. Uh, we looked at, you know, Switzerland, the U.K., Germany also showed a lot of sensitivity to a lack of uh, of federal pandemic relief. Um, one other point, and I think this would be a good point for Jesse, is just debt burdens throughout the, the, the world would have been much worse, especially looking at debt to GDP ratios. Yeah, before we go there, though, the one thing that I wanted to point out that surprised me, I'm just curious, you know, how you think about it, is that the impact on, and I'm here, I'm focused on the United States, the U.S. experience, mm -hmm. that the fiscal, uh, the impact on the fiscal situation on debt, on debt to GDP, would have been, you know, if we, even if we had not provided any fiscal support, which was very substantive, you know, over $5 trillion in fiscal support, beginning with the CARES Act, extending all the way through the American Rescue Plan, uh, even if we had not provided that, the uh, deficits in debt would have ultimately ended up being just about the same <clears throat> as if we had provided the $5 trillion. And the reason being mm -hmm. the economy evaporated without the support that resulted in loss of tax revenue and those automatic stabilizers that I mentioned before kick in and spending increases anyway. So you, you don't get there immediately, but if you look down the road here, you know, a few years, the the cost of the taxpayer is just about the same. So I, I found that somewhat surprising. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, if you look, I mean, to be specific, I mean, 10 years down the road, the U.S. debt to GDP ratio in our counterfactual is spot on with where it where we expect it to be 10 years from now in our baseline forecast. So it's uh, that really speaks to the long term scarring, you know, all the the permanent job losses, the credit problems, the, uh, you know, all this long term scarring that, you know, leads to a permanently lower level of tax revenues. Um, and as you also said in the beginning, we allowed automatic stabilizers, you know, that was that we did not adjust those. And so if you have a weaker economy, there's still more spending over the long term on on social safety net programs just because of higher joblessness. So all those things contribute to a steady but slow rise in, in the debt to GDP ratio. And we end up at exactly the same spot 10 years from now. But obviously now in the short term, it's easy to, you know, to complain about the high debt to GDP ratio without thinking what the long-term consequences. Yeah. Hey, Sharon, you, you, you I know you, uh, thank you for uh, tweeting out the paper. I saw that you did that. That was very kind of you. I appreciate that. And I saw you in your work, you know, you uh, cited the, the work that we did. Um, so was there anything in our paper that you found um, that surprised you that you didn't you didn't think, oh, that that that's interesting. Did, did anything stand out? Um, I think the magnitudes. Um, right. Like, yeah. I, I think I I think I could have forecast the um, direction. Right, right. Right. But the magnitudes and the long lasting nature of the impact, um, I think, is I think is. Um, Maybe large. I don't know that I had a prior, but but they are large. Yeah. Um, they are large and long lasting, and I think that that is easy to to get wrong. The one thing I will say about the paper is um, I get asked all the time, um, you know, given job growth, you know, why are people why why does the public seem pretty pessimistic about mm. the economy? Right. I, I I can only imagine how often you get asked that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure many times more than I do. But one of the things that strikes me is it is really hard uh, for people to think about what could have been, 
Like people don't walk around with a counterfactual. Like, gosh, if, right. if I hadn't gotten those, you know, like they don't, it's hard to even think about a counterfactual for your own life, let alone the economy, right? And so what I love about this paper is it's like, you don't have to, it, it is putting out there for you. Like, like we got you, like, here's the counterfactual. Now, I I, I don't know that Moody's analytics is going to like, uh, uh, Moody's analytics, um, analysis as innovative and interesting as it is, I'm not sure it's going to, you know, filter out and we'll, we'll see a movement in polling. Right. Um, but, but it is actually the quintessential problem of when you stop bad things from happening. Um, and this is tr- right in politics all the time. When you stop bad things from happening, you often wonder like, why didn't, why didn't we get more credit for that? And it's right. because you don't walk around with a counterfactual in your head. Um, and so what I love about this paper is it puts the counterfactual out there. Again, I, I don't know that, you know, in every nook and cranny of the, of the United States, people will will necessarily see it. But it was greatly gratifying to me to have that um, and to think about, you know, how, how can you use it to help tell a story? Um, uh, and uh, even without the even without the numbers. Right. Like, how do you how do you try to explain just what? the crisis would have looked like in the absence of that level of support. Cause it's, it's, it's not only like we did support, but we did big support. In fact, I like to say it was an unprecedented response to an unprecedented crisis that did an unprecedented amount of harm reduction. Um, and that is, it's hard to convince people of that because the last two years have been terrible, yeah. right? People don't walk around and say, boy, those last two years, like that was awesome. Right. Um, <laughs> That's not right. That's not what anybody thinks about the last two years. So it's sort of hard to think like, yeah, but it could have been catastrophic in it was already catastrophic from a health perspective. Right. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, uh, we a can't people we shouldn't probably. overlook yeah. that. But the ways in which it could have been catastrophic from an economic perspective and not just big macroeconomic numbers, but actually how people live their lives is very hard to is very hard to imagine. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I wonder how many people outside of economists and folks in think tanks even know the word counterfactual. <laughs> like, I don't, it's a, you know, it's a pretty hard concept to get one's mind around unless you kind of live in that world. Uh, but that's a very important exercise to undertake, right? I mean, just to try to get a sense of what's going on and how important the policy changes were. That's a, really a docu-series point. on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again, right? Have a have a docu a docu series. Oh, that is not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a book. You know, all these counterfactuals. What if? Well, you know, there's kind of movies like that. Remember, there's some movie where what was it? Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow got on the subway and she didn't, went down. Do you don't remember this movie? You remember sliding this? Doors. Right? Yeah, yeah, Sliding Doors. It was actually a very mm-hmm. good movie. So it kind of the you know the it wasn't the counterfactual, but it was uh, just an alternative universe. But anyway, hey, uh, I do want to ask you, Sharon, on, um, you know, on our study, we, we uh, did weigh in on this uh, debate about uh, the contribution of the fiscal support to inflation. You know, this has become really important part of the debate and discussion. And we found in our work that, you know, in the counterfactual that, you know, inflation would have picked up this time last year as the economy reopened in with the vaccines and demand improved. Uh, but it would come right back in with the weakened economy and we, the, we'd end up with inflation that was, you know, well below the Federal Reserve's target, kind of where we were before the pandemic hit. You know, we get it back into that low fl- inflation world that no one was very comfortable with. And even if you, we, we also ran a, a simulation where we allowed for all of the different policy support in the U.S. except for the American Rescue Plan, 
And we found that, you know, without any uh, ARP, in inflation, you know, uh, you know, w wasn't really affected by the ARP. It really, that was, you know, if, it, it helped to lift inflation and demand and inflation back a year ago. But the kind of the high, uncomfortably high inflation we're observing now or suffering through right now has very little to do with anything with the ARP. Does that does that kind of result resonate with you? I mean, do you have any views on on policy, the policy effort and, and the inflation we're, we're suffering through right now? Yeah, I mean, look, the inflation we are suffering through right now, um, you know, people are really right. It is really hitting families. So the first thing to say is, right, like I think that sort of, oh, it'll be really short term. So don't worry. Um, turned out to be wrong. Right. Lots of people said that that turned out to be wrong. And people feel it and they see it. They see it very dramatically, right? And so that is a counterfactual people walk around with in their mm. head, right? Yep. We've had a long period of low, inf low inflation. Not that many people remember high inflation times. And even if they are old enough to remember, it seems like that thing that we fixed, right? That thing that we fixed and is a long way back. And so they had, people do walk around with a counterfactual of inflation, like the way it was supposed to be was like steady, slow, and, you know, steady, low inflation, very predictable. I didn't have to worry about it. Um, so I think it is, you know, I think it is uh, a very helpful finding uh, whether, you know, time will tell uh, how, you know, whether uh, inflation comes down as many people are predict predicting. Um, certainly I expect as most, I mean, I think the Fed's been pretty clear that they're going to come come in and, and start to ease off since they're still in an expansionary mode. Um, so I, you know, I think to look at the ARP and say, you know, 12 months later when lots of the stimulus is gone, it's like the culprit feels like more political and less uh, analytic um, way to describe the world. But it is a it is um, it is a very real political argument that's being made um, that is that is, I think, clouding the conversation about the importance of relief overall and of the ARP. Um, I think there are for lots of political reasons that are pretty obvious. There is a great interest in saying, oh, that stuff we did in 2020, like that was really important. Uh, but the ARP was just too big. It was too much. It wasn't needed. We just shouldn't have done any of it. And then, you know, we'd be at that lovely two, two and a half percent inflation that everybody was comfortable with. And part of what's great about the, the analysis you all have done is showing is a part of the analysis that showed no, 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 no the stuff we did in 2020 was really important, but we were not done. And if we hadn't come in with ARP, we still would have had a far slower recovery with lots of pain. Um, so I think that is a really important, a really important point because I think that is the politics play out in a way that there are a lot of people who would like to say stuff in 2020 was great, but the ARP was a mistake. Yeah. Well, that that, uh, that is a very important point of the, the piece that without the ARP, the economy doesn't actually quite go back into recession in early 2020, but it comes pretty close to going back and to the point where unemployment actually goes up, not down, as it actually did. So it, it was very, very important. Hey, Jesse, um, to Bernard's earlier point about uh, a number of countries actually benefiting more from external stimulus, stimulus provided by the United States and others, than their own internal stimulus. Do you want to flesh that out a little bit? I mean, which countries, I think you mentioned there were four out of the 10 
that we uh, explicitly studied. Uh, do you recall who they who they were? Do you have anything anything to add on that? That was I thought a very interesting point. Yeah, that that is a really interesting point. I mean, um, if you think about it, in you know our globalized world and you know a, a potentially more fragmented world with China and the U.S. perhaps pulling away and and maybe some repercussions from what's going on with um, Russia and Ukraine today. Um, I think it's just so interesting how interdependent and interlinked the global economy really is. Um, you know, when we did this study, when we first set out to do it, um, we we were looking sort of at the partial effect of, you know, one country and another country. And, you know, each country's own fiscal stimulus was, was important. Um, but, you know, when we combined everything uh, into one uh, simultaneous simulation in the global model, the effects were just really massive. And it just speaks to, you know, how, you know, each economy or no country is an island. Um, the economies, like you said, Mark, that benefited most from external fiscal support were, or at least as much as their own, uh, were China, India, and Brazil. And, you know, these are large emerging market economies. And, you know, it's kind of natural to think that they would, right? You know, because the emerging world is sort of always, you know, driven by, you know, the local motive of, of the U.S. and um, advanced economies, uh, but the, you know, just the, the degree that uh, external fiscal support, you know, was at least um, as much or more important, that wasn't really something that we thought we were going to find uh, at the outset. Yeah, you know, the one of those countries that you mentioned, the one I found most surprising is China, right? Because yeah. if you go back to the financial crisis, they were the country that provided the most fiscal support to their economies. And they actually lifted the global train. I, I don't know that they lifted the U.S. economy, but certainly couldn't have hurt the U.S. economy. But I'm sure it helped. But in much of the rest of the world, it was about Chinese fiscal policy. And this time they took a very different approach. At least that's my sense of things. Is that is that right, Jesse? Yeah, right on. I mean, um, it was much, you know, a much more reserved um, and cautious stimulus. And I think, you know, it, it speaks to underlying um, issues of leverage, both in the corporate and household sectors. And so this balancing act where, um, you know, policymakers want to reactivate the economy, um, but at the same time, um, you know, for very good reasons, are, are concerned about going as big as they did in, in 2008. So you kind of end up in a world in which um, China's own fiscal stimulus is important, both for the Chinese and, and global economies. But really, um, it, it's the U.S. And, and the rest of the advanced world without that strong recovery and domestic demand and really, you know, final demand for Chinese uh, exports, particularly consumer goods, but also, you know, machinery and equipment, China's economy wouldn't have um, recovered uh, as rapidly, uh, not nearly as much, you know, independent of how, how successful they were in controlling COVID. Uh, just one last question, Jesse, is, is there any other than th that, that result, which was quite surprising, Anything else that surprised you in the in the uh, looking globally at uh, you know what countries did? Anything else stand out? Yeah, um, well, I want to underline just a point that Mark made earlier, and uh, sorry, Bernard uh, made earlier, um, and that was that um, you know almost all the economies in the study ended up in a worse uh, in a in a darker place in terms of um, you know debt to GDP ratios and, and debt burdens and. That's not something we thought we were going to find at the outset. And for the emerging world, that really 
really matters. And it's, it's not, I don't think it's, it, it would be, you know, wild to venture that, you know, without this strong fiscal uh, support response, um, you know, that there would have been, you know, a debt crisis, you know, in emerging markets and, and quite a big one at that. Oh, that's interesting. So you're, you're, pos- you're, you're, what you're suggesting, if I got it right, is that, that if uh, governments had not stepped up and provided that support, they could have actually <clears throat> suffered a debt crisis. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive to think yeah, about it, right? Like it, it's, you know, when you when you ask me sort of, you know, what I'm most surprised about that, that really, I don't know, that, that's a ringer. Yeah, oh, that's, that's interesting. Very interesting. Very good. So let's, uh, Sharon, if you don't mind, I'd love to dive more into your work that uh, the folks, it's, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it sounds like you had a lot of folks kind of working on this. Uh, yeah, we actually we had so many that we gave up and we didn't list all the authors because at a certain point, if you have like 14 authors, it looks a little silly. So, yes, it was a whole um, it was a whole of center on budget effort for sure. It look it, and it's a wonderful piece of work. I mean, because if you want to know, uh, well, the the analysis of the impact of the uh, on the kind of on minority groups and on poverty and low-wage workers, you know, very well done. But but the thing I found really uh, helpful is you go through each of the major policy steps that were taken and go through that in some detail. I thought that was very, very helpful. Good, good, good information to, uh, for us to have uh, when, we, when we look back, you know, a few years from now and try to figure out what happened and, you know, how, how well it worked or didn't work. Uh, let's, uh, I'm, you know, in terms of the um, impacts on lower-income, low-wage households, the thing that I found incredibly striking was what you learned about the effects of these policies on poverty. I found that amazing. Do you want yeah. to describe that a little bit? Yeah, it's really stunning, right? So we don't have data for 2021, but we have monthly data. So we feel pretty confident that 2021 will look quite a bit like 2020. Um, so, so right, some of the things we did in 2020 phased out, but then the ARP added more. And so I think we'll see very large poverty effects in 2021 as well. And without the ARP, we wouldn't have. So if you look at 2020, where we do have the the data on poverty um, from the Census Bureau, what you find is that government programs, um, whether they were new or old, government programs overall kept 53 million people out of poverty in 2020, right? So 53 million people had incomes above the poverty line when you look at when you include government benefits. And if we had if we only looked at their private income, they would have been below the poverty line. Hmm. In 2019, the same figure is 35 million. So so there are two things going on between 2019 and 2020, right? That's driving that result. One is there are more people whose private income was low in 2020 because we had massive job losses, right? So part of it is more people have incomes that are low, but that would not have driven that magnitude of an effect. It was because we then did things to help people, and you know, a historic expansion in jobless benefits, stimulus payments, uh, expanded SNAP benefits, what we used to call food stamps. And those things are driving this, in, this really remarkable result so that when you look at 2020 and you compare it to 2019, you would have thought that poverty would go up, but in fact, poverty went down. So 8 million fewer people were had incomes below the poverty line in 2020 um, as compared to 2019. But if we only look at private incomes, we only look at what happens if you only look at people's incomes other than government, poverty would have increased by 9 million people. 
It is a remarkable outcome. Um, and, and I, and I, and again, I think the impacts on poverty will be very large in 2021 as well. And you said you have monthly data into 2021. Is that what you, so there's some monthly data. Um, you've seen, you've probably seen the work that the Columbia, um, center on not going to get the exact name, right. Um, they're doing tremendous work. Um, maybe someone can look up the name and I can actually get it right for them so I can name check them, but, um, they're doing tremendous work. And so just as one example, they are showing that in December of 2021, um, the, the, that um, 3.7 million kids were protected from poverty just from the child tax credit expansion, right? From the child, the child mm-hmm. tax credit. Um, and that in, tw- in January of 2022, when, those, uh, when the child tax credit ended, 3.7 million kids were pushed back into poverty by, the change, mm. by, by ending that policy. Um, so I, I feel very confident that the child tax credit expansion um, the, uh, the, the March, the rescue plan, stimulus payments, the expansion, the continuation of expanded jobless benefits through the summer will result in very large impacts in poverty in 2021. Got it. And there's, um, you, this may be an unfair question, but that doesn't stop me from asking it. So uh, there's a plethora of policy responses, which you nicely kind of lay out and go through in your paper. If you had to pick out one uh, or maybe two that were particularly, you think, effective, which, which would they be? Yeah, which, so I'm you know, it might be hard, but like, uh, which child do I want? Do I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so first, I want to just say it's the Center on Poverty and Social. It's the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. Oh, okay. There so now go. I've gotten their yeah. name right. So thank yeah. you for that. Um, so look we had different policy responses that had really different purposes. And I think it is actually important to think about the categories. So you had a category of response that was broad-based, you know, and the stimulus payments are sort of the best example of that, right? Like lots of people are losing jobs. We're worried about a downward spiral in demand. We're worried about people making ends meet. We're not gonna, one thing to do is to get stimulus payments out broadly, not to everybody. So people that had, you know, quite high incomes in prior years weren't automatically eligible, right? They looked at prior year tax data and we're gonna get it out fast, right? We're just gonna, we're gonna look at people's prior years and we're gonna get money out the door. And there is a lot of value in that. Um, it, you know, it is more expensive because you're getting help broadly, right? And so it's, it is an important stimulus and it is an important support for households themselves, particularly those that are seeing their, their, their incomes go down. It's not highly targeted. So then you have a series of things that are more targeted. So you have an, an unprecedented, really a historic expansion in jobless benefits. And I think a lot of people, there's been a lot of uh, misunderstanding about exactly what those that jobless expand, uh, benefit expansion did. There's a lot of focus on the increase in the benefit amount, and that is hugely important. But what's also hugely important is that we dramatically expanded who was eligible for jobless benefits. So in the normal course of business, in a normal year, before the, pande- before the pandemic, only about a third of people who were unemployed qualified for any jobless benefits at all. And the people who didn't qualify were the people that were struggling the most. So low paid workers are much less likely to qualify. Gig workers and self-employed and contract workers are completely ineligible. 
and people who have been unemployed for quote unquote too long that have that have exhausted their benefits. So those are all people that in a pandemic and a crisis where people are going to be out of work for some time, if we don't get jobless benefits to, we're going to miss a lot of people who really need help. And so the combination of expanding eligibility and providing much more adequate benefits. In, in fact, providing large benefits at the beginning, because really we wanted to make it possible for people to not work as the pandemic and the virus, and we didn't know what was happening on the health right. side. That, you know, that, so that was targeted, but it was tens of millions of people. So still very large effects. And then we have a set of more targeted things that were really about people that were really struggling. So people getting extra help to people that have very low incomes and are getting help through SNAP, again, what we used to call the food stamp program, getting help to kids um, who were missing out on school meals, right? So a household where a kid usually eats two meals a day at school and all of a sudden school is closed, like that is a real problem for a household. And, get, and it was a real policy innovation to say, wait a minute, like they're not going to be able to get school meals, like we've got to get help to them. So then you have these kind of more targeted things. And then the last thing I'll say is on the health side. So there's the public health response about which I am not an expert, but there was also this sense that the last, you know, if a lot of people lose their jobs, the expectation would be that a lot of people are going to lose their health insurance. And the kind of the last thing you want in a pandemic is for a lot of people to become uninsured, right? And so we did two really important things. Early on, we said, People on Medicaid can stay on Medicaid. We're not going to redetermine your eligibility. We're not going to worry if your income went up a little bit or you were a kid on Medicaid and now you're 19. Like, we're just going to keep everybody getting Medicaid so that we don't have all this churn and people have health coverage during a pandemic. And then the second thing we did, which we didn't do until 2021, was make marketplace um, Affordable Care Act marketplace coverage a lot more affordable. And we actually decided to help people sign up. And those two things meant that in uh, meant that in the end by the end of 2021 we had fewer people uninsured than we had in 2019. Hmm. In a world where people were losing private coverage, um, so those are big swings. Like those things would have gone in a completely different direction, um, in ways that would have meant, you know, just. You know, the, when you think about people not being able to make ends meet, like we use these terms, like they can't make ends meet, what happens to a household when they get evicted? What mm. happens to their kids when they can no longer go to their regular school? What it means for a family when they just don't have enough money at the grocery store? These are, when you talk about economic scarring, part of that scarring is what happens to actual people when they have that kind of hardship. Good point. Good point. You know, one of the criticisms of, the various support that you uh, laid out uh, and more most specifically around the unemployment insurance, the supplemental UI, the big payments, was that this kept people from working because they could make more on, in this case, unemployment insurance than, than you know, uh, going, going back to work and you know, get back on the job. Uh, does that resonate with you? I mean, does that enter into your, does that a, a reasonable criticism of the program, of that particular effort or effort, the efforts more broadly? Right. So in general, what we know about unemployment insurance, right, is that benefits are low, people are highly motivated. Uh, and, and to the degree there is an employment effect, it is generally about people staying unemployed a few extra weeks, which actually is generally good because uh, you generally want people to hold out for a better fit job. Um, it's better for employers. It's better for workers. Here we gave much more robust unemployment benefits, particularly in 2020, when actually those benefits were kind of doing what they were designed to do, which is to make it okay for people to not work, right? 
um, uh, when the, as the economy shut down and to bolster um, and to bolster consumption. Then as the economy was beginning to recover, we still expanded jobless benefits really because our underlying system is so bad and because we couldn't do it in a per, particularly laser aligned way. And so kind of we had to pick a number and we had to give everybody the same amount because the underlying system is kind of terrible. Um, and so then we reduced it, right? They weren't getting 600 anymore. They were getting 300 anymore. And yet employment was rising, right? And people knew it was going to end. I think sometimes we, um, I think sometimes people who oppose these programs, um, they can't decide whether people that are in, whether they're jobless or low income, they can't decide whether they're really smart or really dumb, frankly, right? So sometimes they ascribe to them that they understand the inner workings of these benefit programs and this like incredible level of detail. Um, but then they also say, well, this person's not going to look for a job, you know, because they're getting this jobless benefit, even though they know it's going to end. So it is sort of a funny, um, a funny way that people think and talk about low-income people and people that are out of work. Anyway, we know that people were getting jobs, right? And we know that when some states um, stopped the benefit, they expanded benefit sooner than other states, we don't see big differences in return to work, right? We don't see big differences on the employment side. So look, if you ask me, do I think that there is a way to construct an unemployment insurance system um, with very generous benefits that would have you know, that would have employment effects, I think, yes, you could, you know, you could obviously construct a benefit that would be that high, that would have those kinds of effects, right? But I think here we sort of did the best we can, um, the best we could, and it ended and lots of people have gone back to work. Um, but I do want to just emphasize one point, which is some of what we had to do was because the underlying program was so yep. bad. Yeah. And you talked earlier about how in your modeling, you allowed whatever a country had as automatic stabilizers to remain in place. And the U.S. has real weaknesses there. Right. So we wouldn't have had to like dive in. And I describe it as take duct tape and string and try to piece together a better unemployment insurance system if we had a more rational, robust unemployment insurance system that worked for workers in normal economic times and would work during a crisis. And right now we have a system that doesn't work during normal times and really doesn't work during a crisis unless you dive in and really dramatically change the system. But when you do that, it's with a lot of friction, right? And that's why you saw long waits and people, you know, systems crashing because they just wasn't built to do these things. That's a good point. I, I think we, we make that point in our paper that uh, the U.S. provided a very large amount of fiscal support. I mentioned $5 trillion, 25% of GDP. The next closest country, I think, was the U.K. at 17 18% of GDP. But one of the key reasons for that is the one you pointed out, is that the automatic stabilizers in the U.S. are just a lot weaker than they are in other parts of the world. So to get the same support to the economy, you have to use more discretionary, and that's what we measured here, discretionary, meaning you, you have to pass a piece of legislation to get it done kind of uh, fiscal policy. And that's a very, I think a very important point to that. It, it, with that in mind, I, you know, one policy that the set of policies that we, I think have learned has been very effective overseas that we tried to adopt here in kind of a half hearted way is around employee retention. You know, we had this paycheck protection program, which was, you know, loans and then grants to small businesses, less than 500 employees. 
But countries overseas, and when I say overseas, I mean advanced economies, mostly in Europe and Japan, had the, and Canada had these labor market schemes. And I know, Ross, you did a lot of work in this area. What, what is your sense of the effectiveness of those particular labor markets? Can you maybe describe those schemes or maybe pick one of them, like Germany or UK or whatever you think is most important or right. most illustrative, and give us a sense of how well it worked? Yeah, well, most countries in Europe have these uh, short time work schemes, as, as we call them. Uh, Germany's, of course, is the most famous, so to say, because it proved very successful back in the Great Recession as well. There's a lot of talk about that, and countries around Europe sort of took that uh, took their uh, lead and and built up their own systems following that recession. Uh, we've seen in the past two years, in fact, that there's a lot of proof that unemployment in Europe was uh, helped a lot. Employment was helped a lot thanks to these schemes. Uh, to describe them briefly, it's uh, basically where the government agrees to pay a share of the hourly wages that are lost when a firm uh, cuts the hours that one of their employees works. So instead of laying off the worker because they become temporarily redundant, um, they cut the hours and uh, the government pays that uh, the, sh the share of wages that would have been lost. That could even be to zero hours or it could be to half of the hours that they normally work. Um, the effect has been a uh, much lighter hit to employment in Europe than we saw in the US. Uh, but at the same time, we also saw incomes being protected, uh, maybe not to the same extent in the sense that uh, the government typically pays something like 70% or 80%. It depends on the country. They're not all uh, uniform this way. But uh, we saw protection of incomes. We saw protection of employment as well. And I think you could argue it helped uh, leave workers connected to the labor force to, to a large degree as well, because you weren't suffering this long-term unemployment, this long-term uncertainty about whether you'd uh, be coming back to your job or not. And I, I think you could argue quite well that that helped uh, keep labor force participation high in, in, in Europe. Yeah, I think that's a good point that, you know, the fact that these, in scheme is kind of in in my mind it's kind of a pejorative connotation, <laughs> but that's what they say overseas. They say scheme. It's kind of a program instead of it's just a different way of saying the same thing. But the the idea is that keeping people on payroll, even if they're not exactly working, which a lot of people weren't in the teeth of the pandemic, means that they remain connected to their employer. So when business starts to pick up again. They're there. They're working. It's not like here in the United States, we let everyone get laid off or almost everyone get laid off. I mean, even the PPP program I mentioned earlier, that expired in the middle of 2021. So, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs. You, they're not connected to their employer and therefore it's hard to get people back in their seats and, and working again. And that's allowed, that's one reason I think why inflate, wait, you know, wage growth and inflation has been much less pronounced uh, in Europe and in Japan than has been the United States. And one of the reasons why we have these severe inflationary pressures relative, the inflation's up everywhere and it's because of the pandemic. It's up a lot everywhere, but it's up a little bit more here. And this might be one of the reasons why, which uh, if no, anyone asks me, Sharon, you know, the one thing that I think we should focus on, you know, for the next crisis, and this is for crisis, not for typical recession 
I wouldn't conclude this as part of the atomic stabilizers, but I, you know, kind of let's break glass if we need it in a, re in a recession, in, a, in an emergency, would be employee retention tax credit. Yeah, that was part of the, you know, early on the tax in, in the um, CARES Act, never really got traction because of the way it was designed and the eligibility was set in such a way that it would be very difficult for businesses to, to qualify. But that could, you know, very effectively get cash to businesses of all sizes, big and small, you know, in a crisis like the one we went through and keep people on payroll. And so we don't have to gerrymander something like the PPP program. Uh, and it's, it's a, you know, you just use the same tax infrastructure that you have now instead of the business paying the IRS for, you know, unemployment insurance, you know, the, the money goes the other direction. The IRS, you know, cuts a check and puts it into the bank account of the, of the business to hold on to their workers and we move forward. But uh, I think that would be something to explore, you know, going forward. Yeah, so um, I will. I, I just, if I can just jump in. I mean, I think yeah, the sure. one thing, the one thing I will say is that we learned this lesson in the Great Recession. We learned it again here. We're a big place. The United States is a big country, and it is hard to do new things in the teeth of a crisis. So yeah. the more you can figure out how to have something in place that people understand, and then have it accordion, right? Have it grow as needed. The better off you are. So right, like. When we got help to people fast, it was because we built on existing programs. Where we had the most friction was when we had to like change the rules. And so I think like, you know, so in Europe where they had this kind of work sharing, job retention sort of structure, they they knew and they they knew how it worked, right? It was already built in they could say, okay, we're, you know, like now we're going to use this, but they already have the infrastructure set up, right? Whatever their version of ADP, maybe it's ADP, whatever their version of yeah. their payroll administrators, like it was already all programmed in, like it wasn't some new thing. And the new thing happens with a lot of lag. Um, and, it, and those new things can do great, can do great things in, right? So, there was a lot of talk about the emergency rental assistance going out too slowly. A lot of talk about it. I don't know what people thought that like you were literally going to like pass it. And the next day, people facing eviction were going to be just fine. That's not how the world works. Right. But the truth. So it, so there was it was slow at first. But by the end of the year, two three point two million households. That is a lot of people. Three point two million households that were behind in rent. Had, had gotten assistance to pay back rent and to stabilize their housing going forward for up to a maximum of 18 months, 3.2 million households. So you can do a lot of good, but you can't do it super fast. And so when these big crises hit, um, you kind of want to act fast. So that's in general, my mantra is like, what can we put in place so that, you know, we aren't counting also on a political process to act fast. That worked at the beginning of 2020. I mean, we were very, in some ways very lucky that the political process actually worked to pass two relief measures just in March of 2020. But you could easily imagine political scenarios where that wouldn't have happened. And so the more you can bake into the cake, the better protected people are. So, so Sharon, I want to press you on one other uh, uh, issue that's come up with regard to all the support, particularly around the American Rescue Plan. And that was related to the amount of funds that went to state and local governments. I think, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in total, so the ARP was 1.8, 1.9 trillion over 10 years. And of that 500 billion went to state and local governments. I think 150 billion went to, to uh, education, K through 12. 
and another $350 billion basically went out to states and local governments, and it was very open-ended. You know, you could spend it however you wanted to spend it, and you have a lot of time to spend it. I mean, it's still out there in many cases, you know, out to 2024. And, you know, most state and local governments, their fiscal situations look pretty good. You know, not all of them, but, you know, most of them. And it doesn't feel like they needed all that money. And so do you think that was... Does it, was that a mistake giving those state loan governments that money? How do you how do you think about that? How do you re- respond to that uh, criticism to the ARP? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So I think first of all, we're back up and remember that we did important relief to states and um, to states in particular in 2020. We did it two ways. We did it through direct support in CARES, and then we also did it by expanding Medicaid funding to make it easier for states to maintain their Medicaid funding, their Medicaid programs as they were expanding. Then we get to the ARP and you're exactly right, 350 billion, um, but but some big differences. It went not only to states and not only to large localities, but to small localities as well. It also went to territories and tribal governments. Um, And so there's a lot of things to think about about those dollars. One is how uncertain the world was in March of 2021, and not just in March, but in January, February, March as this package is getting crafted. Right. So the end of 2020, we saw rapidly rising virus cases. Right. We knew the economy had slowed down. The political process had been a real problem in the latter half of 2020. Not surprising. It It was an election year. And so we needed another tranche of relief. It didn't come until after Christmas in December. And so so that's the that's the swamp of uncertainty that a new Biden administration Congress is trying to rapidly craft their relief package in. At that time, most states were were expecting and were forecasting continued declines uh, and and very large budget holes, declines in revenues and and large budget holes. Um, And there was a, and, and then there was this, the kind of the specter of the lessons of the Great Recession, right? So in the Great Recession, we didn't do nearly enough state and local aid. In fact, we really only did state aid. We didn't do local aid. It was not nearly enough, and it did not last long enough. And cuts in, in jobs in states and localities, let alone the kinds of services that they cut for people, uh, were a drag on the economy. So given all that, they, you know, it was a very robust package. And in the end, it turned out in part because of the overall robustness of the American Rescue Plan, as your research shows, the economy picked up more quickly, therefore state revenues picked up more quickly. And so their budget holes as a result of the pandemic were smaller or in some cases non-existent because the economy did so much better than they had forecast. Now, they also had higher costs, right? Because they were dealing with a pandemic (laughs) and they had people with a lot of needs. So I don't think it's the case that you wouldn't have wanted to do fiscal support, even if you knew that you'd be back at baseline revenues, you might have done less, right? But you didn't know. And so it was a hedge against what had happened in the Great Recession, which was too little and it didn't last long enough. The other thing is that the dollars were actually designed to not just meet immediate needs, but actually to redress some of what became, some of what we we didn't learn about. I hate when people say we learned these lessons in the in the pan, in the in the pandemic, as if we didn't know that there were just enormous racial and economic disparities in the country. They were just simply hidden. We knew them. We didn't necessarily pay very much attention to them. Um, and 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 certainly over the course of this pandemic, 
the impact of those kinds of disparities were incredibly glaring. So the dollars really were designed to not only be about, about relief, but to be about plotting a course to a better recovery. If you had to do it all over again and you had perfect information, do I think it would have come out a little bit differently? Sure, it would have, but you didn't have perfect information. I think there are two things you could think about going forward to do differently in the next time. One is, could you calibrate the money based on economic circumstances? And the other is, could you more tightly uh, narrow the uses of the dollars? But we should recognize how hard those two things are. They are actually technically hard to do because money's pretty fungible. Um, and because, uh, and because you know, states set budgets and then and they expect a certain amount of money and then economic circumstances change and it's not clear that you want the federal money to all of a sudden become uncertain. Um, and it's very hard to do politically. But, but those are two things you could think about doing. Um, but it's really important to remember that we got this badly wrong in the other direction, the Great Recession, and it slowed the recovery and it hurt a lot of people. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so, Sharon, uh, we we covered a, a lot of ground. There, there, you know, I could keep you for another a couple hours, but I, you know, you're a busy person, so I I don't want to do that to you. And uh, uh, I do appreciate you taking the time out, and thank you for the great study. And it, it you know, uh, we uh, enjoyed working with your folks, and um, you know, you, you have a great team. So, thanks for all the good work that you're doing there at the center, and uh, and congratulations on. On the new, on, I guess it's not new anymore. It's been a year, you said. So, but kind of feels that way. But congratulations anyway. So, thanks well, very thank much. You. And um, I think we're going to call that a podcast. Uh, so, uh, this is a, 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 as I said, a special edition of the of our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any suggestions for future topics, guests, uh, any anything at all, any feedback, uh, we do listen very carefully to what you have to say. So, please fire away. Uh, we would appreciate that. So with that, uh, thanks very much. Mm -hmm.